Hey Logo Geeks, it's Ian Padgett here. I'm back with another podcast that's created to help you make a living designing logos. On this week's podcast, I'm going to be joined by Rob Mason to discuss brand naming. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's episode, The Perfect Match, a game where designers submit mood boards created using Adobe Stock Assets. And if your mood board design is chosen, you will be featured on Adobe's monthly live streaming game show with other talented designers where the winner will go home with $1,000. It's totally free to participate and by simply submitting an entry, Adobe will give you a gift for your time. So it's totally worth entering. To learn more and to enter, visit theperfectmatch.co forward slash play. So as designers, we work closely with our clients quite early on in the development of their companies in some cases. And from time to time, they may want extra strategy based support, such as coming up with a brand name. Uh, There might also be situations where a client will approach you to work on a logo design, but their company name uh, might be too long or it just might not seem suitable for the service that they're offering. And there could definitely be better options out there. So as designers, we might from time to time want to consider offering a brand naming service. I've done this a few times myself and it's definitely not an easy thing to do and I know that not all designers will be interested in this or even enjoy coming up with naming which I totally understand but for those that do want to do this I felt it was worth doing an episode to discuss the topic. So to help with this I'm going to be joined by Rob Mayerson, who's the author of the book Brand Naming, The Complete Guide to Creating a Name for Your Company, Product or Service. Rob is also the founder of Hairloom, which is an independent brand strategy and identity firm, as well as the host of the podcast How Brands Are Built. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing why a good name matters, how to come up with great name ideas, narrowing your options down to a handful, presenting those names to your client, launching a name and so much more around the topic of brand naming. So let's get into this. Here is the interview with Rob Mayerson. So Rob, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to jump straight into a juicy question because you've got a new book out called Brand Naming and I want to talk about brand naming. So as an opening question, why does a good name matter? Great question. Uh, And I start the book there actually because I do feel that 
as a namer, I should be able to answer that question convincingly. And I know that a lot of people reading the book may have to answer that question. So if they are an agency person, they may have to uh, explain to clients why it's important. If they're working in-house, they may have to explain to their leadership why they should invest time and money in a brand name and not just uh, you know, spend an hour in a conference room brainstorming and be done with it. Uh, so I think there are three big reasons that a brand name is important. First is just recognizing how powerful language is. And we know this intuitively in our lives, but it's helpful to just remind ourselves that uh, you know, great speeches, great books, great song lyrics really impact us in very emotional and deep ways. And I'm not necessarily saying that every brand name does that, but branding a brand name is language, just as these other things are language. And you need to take advantage as a business person of this opportunity to harness the power of language. And the name is the first and best opportunity to do that. The second reason is, it's kind of a negative one. It's just how wrong naming can go if you don't pay attention to it. Um, and we can talk more about all the horror stories, but things like getting sued for using the wrong name or uh, finding out that your name means something bad in another language. Um, all of these things really do happen sometimes. And so avoiding them means that uh, it's important to take naming seriously. And then the last is just thinking about what a good investment it can be uh, over time. It's it's one of the first decisions we make about a business or a product, um, and yet it's one of the few that rarely changes. So you may change your logo or your website, but your name probably will stay the same for the life of the company or product. And so um, when you put it in that context, I hope it uh, uh, explains how, how important it is. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I never really thought of it like that. Um, so people listening to this are most likely graphic designers, because th this, is, after all, is a podcast about logo design. Um, but I do like to go into branding and strategy and so on. So people listening to this, they are very likely to be in a position where they could be working with a client. So in my case, and I'm going to assume people listening might be in the same situation, they will have a client come to them. That client already has a name. They've already got a business. They've already got products. They're reasonably successful. They've done the whole DIY sort of logo. And now they got to a point where they want to get their identity redesigned so that they, you know, basically look like who they intend to be. Um, but sometimes... <laughs> As you've rightfully said, when you hear a good name, you know it's a good name. But likewise, when you hear a bad name, <laughs> you know it's a bad name. And um, I don't know if listeners have had this before, but I've had clients come to me that have had awful names. <laughs> yes, yes. So I think it's worth having this conversation. So how do you approach telling someone that they have a bad name? <laughs> yes. Uh, very carefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like it, telling someone they have a bad logo, right? You you don't go there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or you know, it's like telling someone you don't like their uh, significant other or something. <laughs> you can really think of it uh, in th well, think of it this way: it could be that they came up with the name themselves. Um, it could be that they love it, even if that love is completely irrational. 
Um, it could be that their spouse came up with it or, or something like that. And that mm-hmm. in, in insulting the name, they'll perceive that as a slight on whoever came up with it. So yeah. I, I just say that, you know, you really do have to be careful and um, mindful of how much they may have invested in this, both personally and, and financially. Um, that said, you're being paid as a branding consultant, most likely, and the name is part of branding. And so even if you're not a namer, it is probably closer to your area of expertise than your clients. Um, and so I do think that it's something that that you should try to bring up if it really feels like something that's going to hinder your client. Um, after all, they're paying you to help their brand succeed. And if you think the name is going to prevent that, no matter how great of a logo or you know whatever else you're doing for them uh, is created. So a couple of pointers on this, I guess. One is to think about timing. Um, you probably don't want it to be the first thing you say. Uh, you'd like, uh, ideally, to earn a little bit of credibility with your client before you start telling them really anything that you think is wrong with their business. Um, so, you know, it, I, you, unfortunately, you can't design the logo for the wrong name and then tell them it's the wrong name. But if it's a client that you have a relationship with that you've done work for before, then that makes it easier. Um, Another thing you can do is is try to make it uh, so that they don't just have to take your word for it. And so, you know, a lot of times for a logo project, you'll be doing some kind of discovery on the front end. Maybe you're uh, talking to people inside the business. Maybe you're interviewing some of their clients, um, whatever it is that you do to ground yourself in the client's business and brand. And so if you're doing that, then you might use that as an opportunity to sort of subtly get in questions about the name, even if that's you know not really something you were asked to do. Uh, if you can elicit, without manufacturing it, but if you can elicit honest responses from people saying the name is terrible, then it, you can present it more as sort of, I, I had an inkling about this name and it turns out a lot of people feel the same way and, and I just wanted to bring this up because it came out in the research. So that's another thing that you, you can try to do. Um, but you know, ultimately, it's a pretty difficult conversation to have. And, and one thing that uh, I've learned about naming over the past 15 plus years is that it is very emotional. Um, people take these things, sometimes they think about them very irrationally. And so you just have to to make sure that you're delicate in however you phrase things. Yeah, yeah. I really like what you said there, because I, I, think, I think it's the same as a logo. You don't go into a business and say you have a terrible logo I need to come in and redesign it that's not how you sell logo design and I'm sure naming is very much the same you need valid reasons to be able to explain in the way that you have because you're not going in there with what you said and said I don't like the name you are giving very valid reasons so that you're able to have that conversation Um, I know when I've I, it's only been a few times where I've had clients where I've really felt that the name just isn't appropriate. And and a lot of the time it's because it's very hard to say or because it's mm-hmm. so many words. Like I've had right. some clients where it's had like five words and like 10 syllables. And I've referenced back to things, you know, that I've read where say like uh, a good name should be like four syllables um, mm-hmm. or something like that and anyway um i think your answer was perfect and i think it would be good to get into some of the process stuff i think that would be really fun to go to in in this so i think as a starting point i know in your book you talk about different types of names can we talk about what these are 
Yeah, of course. Um, so there are a lot of different types of names and maybe the easiest way to think about it is to give a few examples. So let's pick some uh, famous brand names. Apple is obviously a real English word, um, mm. but it has nothing to do with the underlying products. So we call that uh, a real word name, but it is also an abstract name because the, there's an abstract relationship between that word and, and the underlying uh, products. You can also have descriptive real word names. So Southwest Airlines, for example, is really an airline that uh, started at least in the Southwest United States. Um, and so those are both real word names, but sort of at the opposite of, end of the spectrum in terms of what I call approach, which is the relationship between the meaning and the underlying business or, or product. There's also uh, names that are not real words. So some are what we call compounds. They take two words and smush them together, like uh, Pinkberry or Zipcar. And then other names are, are coined. They're just made up. And um, that can range from uh, a name that's just slightly misspelled, like Flickr, taking the E out, to a completely made up new word like Kodak or Dasani. And so... I tend to think of the different types of names along these these two axes, one of which is that approach. So does the, does the name's meaning relate to the underlying uh, business or brand? And then the other is construct. What How is it constructed? Is it a real word, a, a pair of real words, uh, a coin word? Also, some names are phrases or um, acronyms, uh, alphanumerics. So there are a lot of different types of constructs. Um, but those are kind of the two axes I, I think about. And, and if you think about it that way, then you can come up with or populate sort of a, a two by two chart with just about any uh, combination of those two axes you want. Mm -hmm. That seems like a good starting point for coming up with ideas. And I think that's the inevitable next step, really, um, that comes to mind anyway. Say so you've got a client, you know that you need to rename their company. You've taken on that enormous challenge and I say enormous challenge because coming up with a name is really hard um, at least I mean coming up with ideas is relatively easy but coming up with something that that's new or original and, and actually works for the company is a challenge so in terms of generating ideas how would you approach that with naming well yeah it's funny you, you said I, I know you're a, a designer and many of your listeners are so i wonder uh how similar this is to what you might do for a logo but um i imagine it starts similarly and that it ideally starts with a brief um and maybe maybe you have to do some research and work to to, to create that brief so it could start sort of before that but um the brief contains any pertinent information about what types of names you want. So as you said, maybe you want to only explore made up words for some reason, or maybe you only want uh, words that are that are abstract and have no related meaning to the to the products. How would the um, client know that? Do you, no. do you have that when working on a name? Do, 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 do people specifically say, I want something that's made up and new? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, you don't always know that. And in a lot of cases, I think it's wise to at least explore everything, uh, explore the full range a little bit yeah. just to yeah. see if we find something. But there are cases where um, it's either strategic or it's just a matter of taste. When it's strategic, it, it might be that 
as a simple example, you look at your competitive space and see that everyone is using one specific type of name. And so there's this great opportunity to stand out by using a different type of name. And so you, you then might just rule out one type, one corner of that two by two that I mentioned. Um, and then also there are just matters of taste. Uh, where clients come in and say, God, I really hate these made up words that don't mean anything at all. And you hear things like that pretty often. Um, that's when I think it, it sometimes uh, still makes sense to, to explore it just a little bit. Um, maybe similar. I wonder if you've ever seen this in logo design, but people sometimes don't know what they're going to like or dislike until they see it. And so if they say they hate a certain type of name, sometimes I will throw one or two of them into a presentation anyway, just to see if, you know, if I think it's a really strong candidate, um, and even though it's technically off brief, um, maybe it, uh, it sparks something for them. Yeah, already with what you've explained, it's very similar to working on logo design. And it's actually why I think that a lot of graphic designers are actually very good at naming because the, um, the process is quite similar, really. Right. I think at least the beginning, because with a logo, you want to make sure that you understand who the company is. Um, I personally like to understand any expectations that the clients have, which is exactly what you've done. You know, you you know that the client wants to maybe avoid certain directions. You, I mean, not every designer does this, but I like to understand at least what they are expecting to see. If I know that they want to avoid a certain direction, I would probably avoid it. Although I, I have read stories, uh, there was a really good book that Bill Gardner did. I, I think it's in that book. Uh, he wrote a story about a client that specifically said, I don't want this logo to contain stars. Mm -hmm. And it was purely the, the client's lack of imagination, really. Right, and right. Uh, what they ended up going for was actually a logo using a star, but it was done in a stylistic way. So, um, it, you know, with logo design, it's it's worth pursuing those directions sometimes. And uh, I think with naming, um, <laughs> at least when I've done it, it's worth pursuing all di possible directions. If something works and it feels appropriate, it's worth at least presenting it as a potential direction, even if it's off brief, like you said. Right. Well, we know that, you know, as, as professionals that things like uh, I hate stars or I hate the color purple um, really shouldn't be what we're making these decisions based on. I, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm using the word strategic a lot, but, you know, again, what is your audience going to like? What's going to help you stand out in the market? It shouldn't just be the CEO's uh, personal taste as much as it is sometimes hard to avoid that. And you do have to be respectful of your client's wishes. So it's a bit of a balancing act, but we see the same thing in naming where people will say just completely irrational thing. I hate the letter X or you get people rejecting names because it, it sounds like a restaurant that I used to hate or something like that. Um, and none of it really makes sense. And so you have to be a consultant and, you know, remind them that, what the goal is for the name, what the objectives are. That's a big place where the brief can help is keeping everyone strategic and as objective as possible. Um, even though ultimately it, it, it's kind of going to come down to a bit of a gut call. Probably um, you can steer them away from these peccadillos that shouldn't matter and steer them toward uh, what is the audience going to want to see? What is this going to mean to them? What is the, what are the competitors doing? How are we standing out? And these more, strategic uh, objective questions uh, versus do you love it or do you hate it? Mm -hmm. the, the next step is, is where it maybe diverges. I mean, I suppose a logo designer would start playing with 
um, shapes and, and forms and different visual expressions of ideas. Of course, we do the same thing in naming, but with words. And, and I would say um, one big difference, I think, uh, between design and naming uh, in the way that clients perceive it is that a lot of your clients, I imagine, don't think of themselves as designers or design experts, but pretty much everyone thinks they know the, the English language if they're native English speakers or fluent yeah. English speakers. And so it is sometimes hard for clients to understand uh, that this is a specialized skill and that not just anyone can throw a bunch of words out there. And so I would go back to some of the things I said at the beginning of the conversation about why naming is important and how hard it can be. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people imagine it'll be easy until they try to do it. And some of my best clients have been the ones that have uh, tried it and it's gone terribly wrong um, or that they want me to rename their company because they did it uh, five years ago and they've sort of hated their name ever since um, or been you know, suffering from the consequences of a, of a poor naming decision. So the next step, though, is to just start exploring words, um, exploring ways of conveying the ideas in the brief. Um, there's a lot of using uh, metaphors, looking at synonyms, looking sometimes at etymologies of words, trying on different pieces of words together if we're, if we're trying to coin something new. Um, and so there, there really is no right or wrong way to do it. I would say generally um, it's just starting with the brief, uh, using that a, as a jumping off point as much as you can, and then letting yourself, uh, letting yourself go unfiltered for a pretty long time and coming up with typically hundreds of ideas uh, before you start self-editing and saying, okay, now out of these 600 ideas, which are the 50 that we think are, are good enough to, to pursue a little bit further. Mm -hmm. So with idea generation, you, you spoke then about, you know, basically sitting down and trying different things. Are there certain exercises that you would fall back on? And I'll give you an example with logo design. Um, sometimes I would start with like mind mapping. So something that I find really useful is say that, you know, you're designing a logo for a certain industry. Say like I use football as an example. So I write football in the middle and then I'll draw these lines out and things that come off the, off the top of my head is like a goal, football pitch, fans. Um, you know, you keep writing down all these words that are connected to that. And that can help you to come up with like visual ideas. And then sometimes I start like, you know, if if I drew like a picture of a goal and football, you know, maybe I would try and mishmash different ideas together just based on words as, as a starting point. Yep. Are there similar exercises to that one coming up with a, a name? Well, not, not just similar, but identical. I think I thought mapping, it would be. <laughs> yeah. um, mind mapping is a very good place to start. And it, it could be literally drawing that mind map. It could be sticky notes on the wall, kind of clustered the same way you would with a mind map. Um, I tend to work sometimes just in, in lists where I'll just sort of vertically uh, list concepts and words related to each other and then move over to a new list and, and do a list based on another concept or something like that. But it's that same idea of, of mind mapping, basically. Um, one thing that you can do a little bit, I, I suppose this might work in exploring concepts visually as well, but um, you can think about just the various relationships between words. So um, if you thought about uh, you thought about football as a sport, then you might 
think sort of inside of football, uh, what are all the different components of, of football? And so, like you said, what are the different pieces of the field? What is all the, um, all the gear needed to play the game? But then you can also kind of think above football. So you can just think about sport in general or, um, you know, different, uh, different ideas about sort of the mentality of athletes. And so there's a little bit of maybe more considered or directed thinking that you can do as opposed to just complete free association. I tend to start with that, just letting my mind completely run wild. Um, but if I start to uh, sort of run out of ideas or if I just really want to make sure I'm, I'm digging deeper, then I'll think about um, the different ways that words can relate to each other or I'll start exploring other sources of ideas, which um, I list in the book, you know, things like looking up different expressions or idioms, um, looking at quotations, looking at uh, lyrics from songs, all, all of these can provide inspiration. Um, so that's another, another way to approach the problem. Mm -hmm. How much would you get the client involved in that process? It ranges. Um, a lot of times they're really not involved at all and they don't want to be. Um, it, it depends on the client. Um, you know, if it's mm -hmm. a big corporate client that has a lot of naming projects and they just want to outsource this to an agency, then they don't, they just want you to come back with your name ideas. Um, but I have plenty of clients who want to be involved. Some of my clients are, are creative, uh, people or consider themselves creative people that, um, have great ideas or, or want to play a role. And so, in some cases, I'll run a workshop, usually right at the beginning, uh, to capture that that sort of free association stage, to give everyone a chance to feel like they've gotten a bunch of ideas off their chest right off the bat. Um, as I'm sure you you and your listeners will understand, this this is there's partly a sort of political or psychological aspect to this of making sure that people feel that they've been involved in the process. It can make them yeah. more likely to accept. Uh, the final output, whether or not they see their own own names. Um, so yeah, sometimes it, it they can be involved quite a bit, and other times not at all. Yeah, I think it depends on the client. It sounds very. I, I'm I'm coming in at this as a logo designer, and it's similar. You know, from client to client, some clients want to get quite involved, and you know, in cases like that, it's good to get them to at least feel like they've been heard yeah. um, even though they you know their ideas might not necessarily be used in the final logo at least you know you've given them a chance to have their say you've listened and you've acknowledged their ideas um, so yeah I guess it's from a client to client basis yeah that's right and, and it is I guess it is again a little bit different in that um, really anyone can throw out a bunch of word ideas it's much uh, easier and sort of less time consuming than sitting and drawing a logo idea, which I suppose anyone can do, even if they're not a designer, they can try their hand at sketching something. But I guess there are a couple of risks with involving the client, which I don't think will surprise you. So one is uh, uh, the sort of psychological aspect of it backfires and that they think they've come up with the best name and why didn't they see that in the presentation that you gave? Um, and so I do... I do tend to try to take a lot of the client's ideas and look at them from a legal standpoint and see if they look like they might be available so that I can at least answer that question. Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot of times uh, it's as simple as saying, well, we looked at that, but it wasn't available from a legal standpoint. Um, if they do have great ideas, then that's great. But then the risk is that, <laughs> um, is that they feel like 
we paid you a lot of money and we came up with the idea, right? which is, <laughs> is ironic because they said they wanted to be involved. Um, and so I try to take the stance because I truly feel this way that a great name can come from absolutely anywhere. You, you know, that the actual word or name can come from an off the cuff idea from someone on the client's team, uh, or it can come from the agency and they're not really paying ultimately for just that one idea. They're paying for the process. Uh, they're paying for legal pre-screening and linguistic screening, which we haven't talked about, but these steps that, that all these names have to go through. Um, and they're paying for the expertise and experience of, of sort of identifying a good name when, when we see it, as opposed to just handing over a list of 500 ideas. I interrupt this interview for a short message from the sponsor of this episode, The Perfect Match, a game where designers submit mood boards created using Adobe stock assets and earn your chance to play on a game show to win big. As designers, we pitch good vibes and great ideas through visuals all day, every day. But how well does our design work communicate? Do clients and higher-ups really understand the work that we are putting in front of them? Well, let's find out. Test your skills by assembling a brand-inspired mood board using Adobe Stock Images. And if your mood board design is chosen, you will be featured on Adobe's monthly live streaming game show with other designers, art directors, and creatives where the winner goes home with $1,000. It's free to participate in the perfect match and by simply submitting an entry, Adobe will give you a gift for your time. So it's a real win-win. To take part or to learn more, visit theperfectmatch.co forward slash play. So let's get back to the interview. Okay, so I think with anything, coming up with an idea is easy. If somebody's listening and are trying to come up with a name, if you can't come up with one idea, you have a, a problem. Um, <laughs> somebody that's creative, that's good with ideas, should be able to fairly quickly come up with probably a hundred different ideas. The challenge is narrowing that down or knowing what works, knowing what doesn't work, knowing what's right, what's wrong, and so on. So I know based on your book, there is a process for narrowing this down to one. Can we talk through how you go about, you know, taking those hundred ideas and funneling it down to a handful of suitable options? Yeah, of course. And, and I'll, I will say uh, for a lot of projects, a hundred, it won't be enough. Um, it depends on the category, uh, but the legal constraints can be so tough that, um, you may find that 90 plus percent of your ideas are not available legally. And so that's scary. So is, you have to come up with thousands of potential yes, uh, ideas. I would say, I would say <laughs> hundreds, if not, uh, you know, a little over a thousand. Most yeah. Of and, and I so think this is one of the things, sorry to interrupt. I think this is one of the things that graphic designers completely underestimate because I've seen, um, I've known students come out of university, they're trained as graphic designers. One of the things that they want to start offering is naming, not mm -hmm. realizing how hard it is. Right. Um, I think coming up with a good name is actually one of the hardest things that anyone in, in, uh, that's involved in brand strategy probably faces. Because sometimes a good idea can just crop up and you, know, you roll with it. But most of the time, 
like you said, you have to come up with thousands and then run through this whole screening process uh, to narrow it down. And it's very time consuming. Um, Right. Yeah. Both the generating of ideas. I mean, like you said, it's relatively easy to come up with a hundred, but coming up with your, your 300th idea, it starts to feel like you're squeezing blood from. Yes. (laughs) Um, And that's why I have uh, in the book, a lot of recommendations for things to do to, to uh, build out your list, things to do when you hit sort of writer's block just different approaches to the problem. Um, and that's also why sometimes it helps to have multiple namers on a project. Um, I typically work with others and, you know, we'll each come up with 250 ideas and, uh, surprisingly there's not as much overlap as you might think. And so you very quickly have a list of 600 or 700. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but to answer your question, how do you get from, so six or 700 down to, uh, say 20 that you might want to present to a client or, or 10, uh, it, it's a few steps. So first I just shortlist from that long list. So because it's been somewhat freewheeling, um, there are bound to be a lot of ideas in that longer list that just aren't quite right when you really think about it. And so I go back to the brief, remind myself what we were trying to achieve, go through the list, uh, painstakingly sometimes with other namers and just pull the, the best of the, of the bunch. And that's usually less than 100. So you're back to a somewhat manageable list. And then those need to go through what's called preliminary trademark screening. Uh, so uh, like I've said, trademark availability is, is a big uh, hurdle for any name. Uh, and yet it's it's near impossible or, or just um, unreasonably expensive to ask a lawyer to go through a list of 50 or 100 names and really examine them all for availability. So So what we do instead is a short and relatively inexpensive preliminary trademark screening or what's sometimes called a knockout search where you're just looking for obvious problems with that long list and saying, okay, well, out of these hundred, these 40 just, you know, immediately came up with red flags that somebody else is already using them, or we went to the website and it's a direct competitor. And so it's easy to just knock those out. Uh, Maybe another 20 seem completely clear. We couldn't find anything related to them. And then the rest are sort of in the middle, like a a yellow light in a stoplight system. And so that's one thing, one place where you start to weed out names. Then you would also do typically a linguistic check. So it depends on the situation, but especially these days, most clients uh, are going to be exposed to multiple languages and or cultures with whatever name they're creating, whether it's a company or a product or a service. And so uh, you want to do, again, not a deep search with, you know, heavy quantitative research in each market, but a knockout search where you're asking uh, a handful of native speakers in those countries, uh, does this name mean something bad? Uh, but it's not just that. I mean, that's kind of the, the nightmare scenario that everyone thinks of and sometimes laughs at is, oh, your name means uh, barf in this language. Uh, <laughs> But there's a lot more subtlety to it than that. It could be that there's just a brand in that country already. And maybe, you know, I was naming something recently and it turned out it was a just a facial tissue brand in another country, which wasn't in the same category. So it wasn't legally problematic, but it just felt a bit weird to have basically the same name as as Kleenex or something. Hmm. Everyone in that country would have associated it with, with that. And then sometimes uh, it can just be a pronunciation issue. So it could be fine from a meaning standpoint, uh, not similar to anything else, but people in Poland can't pronounce the, you know, the, the GH together at the end of that name. 
Uh, and so it's going to be a problem in that country. That's really interesting. So can I just quickly ask with the trademark stuff, is there a specific website where you're going to basically type in a name and double check what's coming up? Yeah, the, the most uh, useful site is the United States Patent and Trademark Office mm-hmm. has a, a free uh, public database called TESS. It's the trademark electronic uh, search system. Or <laughs> I can't remember what the two S's are. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Um, I've spoke about that with a trademark attorney when I've interviewed someone. And uh, that seems to be a common way of checking. Is it global? when well, you use that trademark no, it, yeah not technically because it's the u.s uh pto but um a lot of uh, especially big companies will will register there even if they're uh not u.s based um, sure. but no there, there are uh analogous systems um all over the world there there's a, a big european uh one called wipo um and other countries have their own systems and so i i'm not familiar with all of them but I'll typically, I suppose most of my clients are either U.S. based or at least have a mm-hmm. big exposure in the U.S. So I'll typically check there. But another really important thing to check is just Google or just a search. And um, you, you may find things that aren't registered, but at least in the U.S., you don't have to register a trademark to still be able to claim some trademark rights. If you've been using a, a business name for a decade, uh, but never got around to registering it, you, you can probably still um, go after someone for using the same name as you if it feels like it's going to confuse customers or it's going to harm your business. And so uh, that's one reason, but also just because it's easier to just Google around and see if anyone else seems to be using the same name for the same goods and services. Yeah. So I guess at this point, you're just doing a quick check, really. You know, just making sure that there's nothing obvious coming up if you was to present these 10 names to a client. Um, but obviously, you know, when you do finally get to that one, I guess it's the same with logo design. There's only so much that you can actually do, you know, checking online, checking on these databases and stuff like that. But until it goes through the actual registration process, you never entirely know. So I guess that's exactly the same issue with names, probably even more so with names than logos. Because logos are, well, I, I I work with a trademark attorney sometimes, and he told me it's rarely the logo that's the issue. He said it's normally the name if anything does come up. Because you know, if there's any, if if another company sounds remotely similar, then there's an issue. Yeah, yeah. So I know that um, the same tra- trademark uh, database can be used to search for logos, but it it's. It's pretty hard. I, I'm not an attorney and I, I've never really done a logo search, but I, I've heard and it seems that it would be pretty difficult because you have to describe the logo the same way somebody else has described it in order to mm-hmm. find whether there's a, a hit. So you're searching for things like triangle or you know the color or something. Um, whereas with the name, it is just the word. Yeah. Um, it, there's still a little bit of difficulty there and that if somebody spelled it differently by one letter, um, contrary to some popular belief, you, you can't get around a trademark issue by just changing a letter in the name or, or removing a letter or something like that. If it if it seems really similar, then it's still a, a problem. And so you need to do somewhat of a, a flexible search looking for not just the exact same spelling, but but similar enough names that it might cause confusion. Yeah, sure, sure. So we spoke about narrowing this list down. Say you've got 10, you're checking the whether it, it's legally available, whether it's comfortable to say it, what are you actually presenting to clients when it comes around to sharing what you've done with them? 
Yeah. So I'll show names that have gone through this whole process that have been shortlisted, that uh, don't have any obvious legal conflicts or linguistic issues. Sometimes there's a little bit of domain checking in there as well. And so whatever names uh, sort of remain the best of the bunch at the end of that process, um, I'll typically present. Uh, I try to present somewhere between 10 and, and maybe 20 up to sometimes closer to 30, but that's pretty rare. It does depend again on just on the situation. And the way that I present them, uh, <laughs> as little design as possible, basically, I don't want to bias people. I don't want to show, I know some people do this or think that this should be done, but I don't want to ever have even sort of sketched out logo ideas for each name. Um, yeah. First off, I don't think any anyone wants to rapidly sketch out logos because it kind of devalues the entire process, but but also uh, it can bias people for or against the name. So I really try to show them in a neutral font uh, on a basically black and white slide. I do try to provide a visual aid though, um, the same visual aid for each name. And, and that is purely because it really helps people imagine a, 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 a basically an unfamiliar word as a company name or as a brand, if they see something that looks realistic, if they see it with maybe a circle R next to it on a business card with somebody's uh, details, or if they see it uh, mocked up on the product that is eventually going to bear its name, uh, it's such a leap of faith to just say this seemingly you know, sort of out of thin air, this, this word or this, especially if it's an invented word, is going to be a brand that we're going to invest a huge amount of money in, or that's going to be worth a lot of money one day, or that uh, millions of consumers are going to pick up at a store. It, it just seems strange to do that. And so sometimes that visual aid can really help people uh, get across the finish line. Oh, wow. That, that's really interesting. So to some degree, you're taking the name, picking out a font color, but then using that same thing throughout your presentation. So at least they can picture how it could look i like that because it's especially for graphic designers because i th i think something that's gonna happen people will listen to this and if they don't already offer naming as a service they might consider it so it's going to be graphic designers offering this as a service and it's quite nice to actually think that when it comes around to presentation you can start to build the identity right away from the name and present it as as an identity, because it sows the seed for other services. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I, I yeah, I try not to go too far down that road because, uh, well, first off, if it's the same one for every name, then uh, you know that may not the, the name. I would think might ultimately um, impact the design and solution. Yeah, uh, and so you kind of don't have an opportunity to tailor it to the name if you're showing the same thing. I, I also I do try to avoid color on the off chance that someone has an aversion to a color or something then I, I don't like to, to bias them that way. Um, but yeah, you can start to kind of get people thinking about this as an identity. And, you know, we didn't talk too much about what makes a good name or bad name, but I do think it's important for everyone uh, listening and their clients to know that um, they should be thinking about the name visually as well as verbally. So uh, that's part of the reason I show it on the slide and say it out loud um, I want them to hear it. I want them to think about, you know, radio ads or podcast ads. And so does it roll off the tongue? But also it's going to be a logo probably or a name that's on a product or on a website. And so 
even if it sounds great, does it does it have the potential to look great? Um, and I'll rely oftentimes on designers to help me there. That's one place where a namer and a logo designer can really partner is I've had designers tell me, you know, it's going to be really hard to make a, a logo out of this name. It's, it's too long or this cluster of letters is just kind of ugly. You know, obviously great designers can, can work magic with just about anything, but still it's good to have the input of some names just really lend themselves to a great uh, mm-hmm. identity and some less so. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. Uh, something I wrote down as a potential question while you was talking. So coming up with a name, one of the most important things is, is this protectable? Uh, you check whether it can be trademarked. We've already spoken about that. I think that's the most important thing, really. You know, if if you ticked all of the other boxes, you can register it and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, domain names social uh, media that's something that as a graphic designer i think of that before the actual trademark registration and i'm sure a lot of your clients do yeah um have you come up with a good solution for what you do in the situations where you come up with the most incredible name it's available you can register it it works perfectly for the business but then somebody has taken the domain name they've got the dot com the dot the dot co uk is gone the, all the social handles have gone. Have you come up with an interesting way to get around that sort of scenario or would you deem that as a problem for that name? Uh, yeah, no, it's sort of yeah, yes and no. Um, right. I've dedicated a chapter of the book to it. Uh, it's, it, it is sometimes a big problem and sometimes much less of a problem than, than clients tend to think it is. So the, the big takeaway is not to let, my advice is to not let the domain availability or lack thereof drive your entire naming process. That's the mistake I see people making is they just start with what.com can I get? And that is a decision. And if that is really your priority and you've thought through it carefully and that is it for whatever you know reason, I, I rarely would I think that it makes a lot of sense. But if you just insist on having an exact.com, then I, Frankly, I would throw out a lot of the naming process or at least postpone it and just go look at what .coms you can get, then start narrowing down from there, put it through the legal process. Another big piece of advice here um, is just to make sure that you're never conflating domain availability and legal availability. So just because you got the .com successfully does not mean you own that name from a trademark standpoint. And just because you registered a trademark does not mean you can go bully someone into giving you the .com because you have a registered trademark for that name. They're two completely separate things uh, for the most part. So the way I solve it, though, is um, I I like to try to discuss it a little bit up front with clients. I want to make sure that we're not completely misaligned um, because typically the exact .com for any name that I'm going to show them is probably not available. That's just how bad the availability picture is right now mm-hmm. uh, with .coms. And so uh, I try to make sure that they're not going to insist on that uh, or think that I've screened everything for available .coms when I haven't. The, the best and most common solution is to add a descriptor after the name. So uh, if you're uh, an agency, you put agency after the name. If you sell coffee, you put coffee after the name. And that will often open up a .com or at least a .co or something like that that seems reasonable. Um, you can look at alternative top-level domains, not just .co, .io, um, but there are 1,500 of them now. So 
Uh, if you run, if you do have that coffee shop, you can get dot coffee. If you do have an agency, you can get dot agency. So I tend to think about all these alternatives once the name has been uh, chosen, or in some cases, once we've narrowed it down to maybe a top three or a top five. The the other reason is it's really impossible to know what the full domain availability picture looks like until you do some pretty significant digging sometimes. Um, I know that there are these bulk domain searches like on GoDaddy where you can put in your 100 ideas and see which .coms are available for 12 bucks or sometimes 1500 bucks. And that's great. But the ones that it says aren't available could be for a lot of different reasons. It could be that somebody has bought it and they're just holding on to it. It could be that a business is using it, but the business has been uh, out of business for five years. Um, it could be any any host of things. And so really what you're going to ultimately have to do or, or probably want to do is uh, either hire a domain broker or in some cases do it yourself and reach out to people that maybe have the exact.com, find out if they're willing to sell it. And that can take time to get them to respond. It can take a lot of negotiating over price. It can take time for you to figure out what you think the right budget is. And so doing that for for 100 ideas on your list is just, you can't do that. And so I tend to try to um, make that something we solve for closer to the end of the naming process. Yeah, yeah. I know I um, got the .com of LogoGeek. It wasn't available originally, but the person bought it, but didn't ever use it. Right. And it took me a long time to be able to track them down and contact them. But in the end, we we made a deal. I, I paid a lot of money for it, but yeah. I felt like it was important to what I was doing. And uh, I, I actually think it wasn't too expensive oh, for, for what yeah, it was congrats, really. They, they, congrats on getting it. That's, that's <laughs> I think they could have asked for maybe, like if they 5X'd it, I probably would have still bought it because wow. as far as I'm concerned, I, I need... Oh, I want it. <laughs> I put so much work into Logo Geek. It makes sense to get the .com and uh, to actually get that and to own all of the other domains is, um, and all the social handles and so on. Is I, I think as a business owner, it's really valuable if you can get that. So they are sometimes expensive, yeah, um, yeah. extremely expensive. Wow. But if it's worth it for you, then go for it. That's yeah, how, a couple that's of points, how I see it. A couple of points on that. That's a great story about getting Logo Geek. I just um, a, a brand consultant uh, and professor named Larry Vincent just told this story the other day um, that uh, apparently when Microsoft wanted Bing, they went to whoever owned Bing.com and said they wanted to buy it, and the owner said, "Sure, but it's going to cost you a lot of money." And Microsoft said, "Okay, you know what are you thinking?" and he said $500,000 and the Microsoft attorneys who were charged with getting this domain agreed and, and uh, breathed a sigh of relief because they had been authorized to spend $5 million for it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of heartbreaking for whoever owned Bing.com uh, to know that. But yeah, a couple of thoughts on this. Um, there are people who do this professionally that know a lot about what different domains sort of really are worth. It's just like buying a home. There's kind of no real value except what other people are willing to pay for it. I guess that's not just a home. That's kind of everything. But I tend to relate it to homes because you look at comparables, you know, what have other domains that are similar in terms of length or meaning or words sold for recently? And they can do they can do this the same way a real estate agent would. 
and figure out about what they think a domain should cost. They can negotiate on your behalf. Um, and then really importantly, uh, that tying back to the Microsoft and the and your Logo Geek story, uh, if you go after a domain and the person who owns it can sort of sense how much you want it <laughs> um, <laughs> or picks up on the fact that you are Microsoft and have deep pockets, uh, they're going to charge a lot more. And so another yeah. thing that you can do either with a domain broker or if you're just pretty savvy, do it yourself, is just make sure that they don't know who you are or they don't think you want <laughs> I did it that. as you do. I did that. I I ended up using my Hotmail address and, you know, just casually like, oh, I've come across this domain. Does it happen to be available? Would you be interested in selling it? Right. <laughs> I think yeah. you have to be like that because I think if you go in and you're like, oh my God, I've been working on this company for 20 years and I desperately need this. <laughs> Obviously, anyone sure. that's got any ounce of common sense is going to be like, yeah, you can have it for a lot of money yeah. <laughs> because you know as a seller that they really need it and they're going to exploit that. So definitely, yeah. if you're going to do it yourself, <laughs> be savvy with it. You know, it's, it's like if you're going to go in to buy a home, you don't be like, oh, I really love it. You'd be like, oh, it's all right. Yeah, quite like <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> I think this could uh, work for us. Uh, it's one of the 10 that we're looking at. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> okay, so we're coming up to about 50 minutes. So I think to close off this conversation about naming, um, like so now you picked a name. Mm-hmm. How do you approach actually launching that into the real world? Yeah, uh, first you have to make sure you've secured it. So um, even after you've checked the availability, uh you do typically want to register a trademark. And so then you are probably going to want to work with a lawyer to do it. You, you could do it yourself, but um, probably want to work with a lawyer to make sure everything's done properly. Um, you may still have to go after that domain as we've discussed. So, you, you know, first thing is just make sure you've kind of got it locked down tightly. Um, social media handles as well. But then when you actually go to launch, um, so much of it depends on uh, the the context, uh, whether it's a company or a product, whether it's renaming or a new name, but a few rules of thumb. One is I tend to advise clients not to think of launching a name, but to think of launching a brand uh, of which the name is one piece. And so try to launch everything together. So if there is going to be a logo designed for it, then don't announce the name and then later show the logo. Um, you know, if you're if it's a new company, then just launch the company all at once with the name and the logo and the website. And the reason is when you put too much focus on the name, uh, a lot of times that'll just cause sort of an unnatural judging of the name out in the world. And, and inevitably, some people will love it and some people won't. Um, but it's kind of strange to have people just react to the name as opposed to the way they would actually react to seeing a company online or seeing a product on a shelf. So try to launch everything at once. Um, Make sure you get your story straight in advance. Um, I don't know if you see this with logos too, but these days it feels like people really appreciate at least a little bit of an explanation of, you know, why is this the name or why did we like it? Why did we choose it? Um, why are you changing your name? Um, there should be a reason there. It shouldn't just be we wanted to. There should be some strategic rationale. And so having that 
ready. Um, as in, if you're a relatively sizable company, then you want to have something written down and shared with other employees so that everyone can be preaching from the same uh, hymnal. Uh, it is really important. And then lastly, it, it's trying to present a united front when, when the name comes out. Uh, again, people, whatever the name is, some people will probably not like it as, as much as others do. And so making sure that uh, you have a lot of positive energy around the launch is really important. One of my favorite stories is when uh, when Alphabet launched, the Google parent company, uh, Eric Schmidt, who uh, was the former CEO, I think he was still involved with the company at the time, immediately tweeted that he loved the name. And it was so immediate that I felt like, okay, they, they planned that in advance. Like he, whoever runs his Twitter account just set that up to go out like a minute after the, the announcement. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the right way to do it. I think that's really smart is have some allies that maybe don't work for the company come out and say, oh, that's great. I love the name. I love the logo. This is such a cool looking brand. And, and try to build that positive momentum uh, when, when you go to launch. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is one of those things where branding, identity design, which the audience will be familiar with, the naming is one part of that. So I think in terms of like launching a name, it's actually launching an identity, like you said, and um, it's something that the audience will be very familiar with because we're uh, very much involved in that process. Right. There are rare cases where the name is launched alone. It's never advisable, but I'm just thinking of the Washington NFL team um, that, that had to rebrand because their name was considered racist. You know, when it's something like that, where it's a big public renaming and people are waiting with bated breath for what's the new name going to be, sometimes the name kind of comes out as a standalone uh, brand asset. And, and that's where you see it. It often doesn't go that well, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. trash it immediately. Um, and there's so much attention on just the name. Um, but there are cases where you kind of have to do it. I would just try to avoid it if you can. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so one last question. You have a book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that as a closing question? Sure, of course. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for giving me the opportunity to. No worries to at all. I think people should go and check it out. It's a very good book. I've not read it back to back yet, but there's a handful of naming books out there, and this is one of the best of them that I've seen. Thank and so it's much. got a nice forward by Alina Wheeler, who also has one of the best books on branding. So, yeah, you've got a good person to do a forward there. So, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Alina, I interviewed her uh, not too long ago, and we kept in touch and we've become friends uh, as well as her writing the forward. So, it's been a really um, rewarding experience just uh, her friendship as well as her professional guidance and yeah uh, she she's really genuinely lovely she is um i've uh, she was really kind after i interviewed her to send uh, a copy of her book and she sent like a card that had a picture of her on she wrote like a little letter oh, and wow. um the actual envelope it came in was decorated with stickers and stuff you know she's, <laughs> she's got such a personality and um she's got um a lot of warmth to her she's very friendly and uh caring I so I agree. so there you go there's the plug for the book buy it <laughs> by alina Wheeler. um the rest of the book is okay too i wrote it um <laughs> it's uh thank you for for uh what you said about the book it's um i mean i'll say this and i think uh 
it may hopefully will get some people really interested in the book. It may turn off other people, but I just want to be really candid about what it is. It is it is a process oriented book that is how to do naming. Um, it's not a lot of uh, it's not a whole lot of theory or sort of fluff. Uh, there are some stories in there and and some funny anecdotes, but it's not sort of about uh, other brand names in the world or or you know the philosophy of of branding or naming. It is. It is a, a procedural guide to this is how professional namers do what they do from the very beginning to the very end with examples and, uh, and tips every step of the way. It's based on my uh, years of experience as well as interviews I've done with other professional namers. So um, it's sort of a don't just take my word for it uh, book, which I, I really wanted to do because um, there are some other naming books out there. Some of them are, are great, but pretty much all of them are uh, written by a, by one expert, and it's sort of their take on naming. Um, I, of course, that's unavoidable, and and you know my book is is to some degree my take, but but I really wanted it to be a little more universal. Of again, this is how uh, people that I think are the best in the business do this consistently um, and consistently come up with great name ideas. It's it's a process, um, and there's some magic to it, and, and certainly some creativity, which is part of why I have no qualms sharing all of it. I really, I try not to hold back at all with exactly uh, how it's done, but, um, but there's a lot of process to it and a lot of things I've learned by trial and error that honestly, I wish I had had this book uh, 15 years ago because it would have helped me avoid a lot of those mistakes and, and answered a lot of questions that I had uh, on day one. And that's a lot of why I wrote it. I just felt like, um, and <laughs> speaking of which, that's another, uh, another thing I, I took from Alina when I asked her why she wrote her great book, uh, Designing Brand Identity, she said it's the book that she wished that she had on the shelf. And mm-hmm. that is uh, now my answer that I have uh, borrowed from her as to why I wrote Brand Name. Yeah. And I think anyone that's listening to this, that's the book that they want. <laughs> yeah. They want to know how to do this, what the process is, and how they can actually add it as a service to their product offering. So um, I hope that through this conversation it's uh convinced people to go and check out your book brand naming um i i recommend it and hopefully this conversation has given trust and credibility to you so rob it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you finally uh we've been long overdue this conversation um but yeah it's been an absolute um uh yeah it's been fantastic so thank you so much for coming on uh thanks for having me and the feeling is mutual Thank you so much to Rob for coming on the podcast. There were so many insights into brand naming in this episode. So I hope you really enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about Rob and his agency, Helium, head to heliumagency.com and for his podcast, howbrandsarebuilt.com. I'll link to those websites along with Rob's social profiles in the show notes for this episode. And you can find it just by heading to logogeek.uk forward slash 131. And on that page, you'll also find a transcription of the interview too and links to uh, anything useful we mentioned in the interview. And just before I end the podcast, don't forget to go and check out the sponsor of this podcast, The Perfect Match, and start working on your mood board design today 
for a chance to win $1,000. Again, to learn more about that and to enter, head to theperfectmatch.co forward slash play. So thank you so much for listening and I'll be back the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.